Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we're taking you through the best bits of the Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century by Heather Haying and Brett Weinstein, The Evolution and the Challenges of Modern Life. You may have heard that we're living in the best, most prosperous time in history, or you may have heard that we're living through the worst and most dangerous time in history. You're probably not sure which side to believe. The problems we face today are both more complex and simpler than the experts make them seem, depending on who you ask. Yeah, it's a bit of a dichotomy. I think a lot of people have got an idea, one or the other, and um, if you spruik one idea to the person who thinks the opposite, then they think you're, you're an idiot. But maybe something we can all agree on and a different way to describe our world is it's half a novel, right? There's extraordinary amounts of change that's just being pumped out uh, these days. The rate of change is actually so rapid now that our brains, our bodies, our social systems, they're perpetually out of sync. Some things are evolving faster than others can keep up with. So the rate of change is so rapid that we are having a lot of trouble keeping up and what comes out of this is a serious cognitive dissonance to live in a society that you know, it's moving so fast. We want to think like we can get a, got a grasp on reality and what's actually happening, but it's becoming more and more difficult as the change keeps going. So the background of Heather and Brett, they're evolutionary biologists, so they're, they're rooted um, in a strong technical background and they're applying it to the day-to-day problems, really looking at the hunter-gatherer societies as a lens and a paradigm that we could view our challenges today and potentially with some solutions to solve them as well. Yeah, in this book, they explore the mismatch between our evolutionary tendencies and our modern environments and it outlines how some of these seemingly innocuous aspects of contemporary living are harming us or even potentially stifling our true nature and our potential. So us sold homo sapiens, we oscillate between two different modes of being. So when we face problems for which we don't know what the hell to do, uh, we become conscious to figure it out. So for example, as a hunter-gatherer, you're strolling around, you've you're at your comfort of your own little neighborhood, you've picked all the apples off the fruit tree and it's running out, and you're like, shit, we got to uh, go across that ocean and go to new land. And when you're in this new land, this is when you become conscious, right? And the old way of solving them may not apply. And you need to come up with a new hypothesis, new observations, and new solutions to new challenges. So that's consciousness. Yep. And then if that works and it kind of becomes uh, refined, it gets ingrained, it gets driven into a more automatic, deliberate thing, that's when consciousness transforms into culture. It's almost that consciousness. Almost, you know, I suppose a better way of saying it is like the, the gymnast and the warrior, at first they're extremely conscious. They have to really consciously practice really, really hard. But once it's ingrained, being conscious is actually worse. It's when they become like subconscious and just act uh, based on their training. That's when they actually deliver the best results. Yeah, so it's an interesting way to look at culture because culture is like a pretty weird term to, to think of and um, yeah, it's not a bad uh, analysis. It's like uh, an individual when you're in flow and things become automatic driving the car, uh, that is sort of like the automatic flow of uh, what we are at the you know population level. But this model he comes up with, it implies a couple of things. So when times are really good, um, we probably shouldn't be reluctant to challenge ancestral wisdom. So challenging culture and changing things too much because things are going so well, culture has probably got some some point and we can't really see the problems it was solving when it was originally initiated, but it is solving something today. On the other hand, when things aren't going well, we probably should endure the risks that come with change and swap into conscious mode. So, you know, it's a good time then to become comparatively progressive or liberal, if you will. 
and perhaps when things are going well, it's probably a good time to be conservative. So there is a time and a place for both uh, political paradigms. Yeah, if there's a specific approach to if times are good or if times are bad, that's probably a good thing. The problem is in the modern world, no one can really agree. Are times good or are times bad? Uh, So it means some people are employing one approach, some people are employing the other approach. It's like, uh, you know, moments before the Titanic hit the iceberg, the ship was this massive engineering feat, uh, a marvelous testament to human achievement. But of course, moments after, it seemed like, what the hell are you guys doing? This was just a massive uh, monument to the hazard of hubris. Uh, And it's too often that only in retrospect that we're looking and thinking, why the hell were you rearranging those deck chairs (laughs) as the ship was going down? Well, it's hard to know if you're having a Titanic problem. There's all sorts of different problems to hit us as a species, like the financial collapses of 2008, oil spills, Fukushima, nuclear disasters. But all these issues we're dealing with have a civilization-level disorder. Uh, Brett and Heather, they call it the suckers folly. And this is our tendency sometimes to look at the short-term benefit um, and not to obscure risks and long-term costs when we're dealing with complex systems. And alongside that, just the the focus on just driving acceptance, even though there is a net uh, negative risk uh, looking at the bigger pictures. If we look at us as uh, humans, the human species, we're brainy, we're bipedal, we're social, we're talkative, we make tools, we cultivate land, we produce myth and magic. We've remained ourselves over time and across space over and over and over again, learning to dominate one habitat after another. Generally, as these evolutionary biologists, as they're looking to you know, classify or define uh, different species, it's the you know you can define them by all sorts of different things, uh, but probably the most important way is to define them through their niche, and that niche is their particular way of interacting with and finding a, a way to make a living in their environment. Yeah, the old woodpecker, it can just it's got a f- serious niche here. It's got a long, 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 <laughs> what long? What do you call it? Beak. <laughs> yeah, can peck all day uh, to get to that nut that not not anyone else can do, and every. Every animal out there has got some sort of niche. I picked a bit of an obscure one there. I think <laughs> it's come up in the past from Seth Godin. <laughs> but like, what is the human niche, uh, right? Like, you know, have a think about that. Um, what they're saying is as a species, we've actually escaped this fundamental law of nature in, in, in one sense because um, our sort of style is the jack of all trades, the master of none. No, that was the law. The law, of, the law is jack of all trades, master of none. Which is normally the case. Normally, you either specialize or you generalize. You can either be a master of one thing and shit at everything else, or you can be, you know, so-so at everything, but not really good at any one particular thing. Somehow, the humans have got to be the jack of all trades and the master of nearly everything as well. It seems like wherever we go, mm. the humans have found a way to get to the top of the pecking order. Yeah, you brought us home there, there well. So, that is our niche. We don't actually have a niche. Yeah. <laughs> um, we've escaped this paradigm that, you know, the game that all the other... Uh, species out there are playing we've just changed the game entirely and mastered a different game we've actually discovered how to swap out our software and replace it and change the software and how we think uh, when the need arises so we have this ability to oscillate between culture and consciousness right so that that idea of when something's new swapping to consciousness mode and then when that becomes automatic putting it into culture and we don't have to think anymore that's right. He says that the humans, we're like the master of every trade. If we were machines, we'd be those ones that are compatible with pretty much every software package. You know, we'd, either, we'd have the right uh, dongles and the right adapters to be able to plug into whatever we need because we can switch between all these different modes, between these different niches, and we've somehow worked out a way to just kind of conquer everything. So, having a, another look at evolution again. So, in the 21st century, 
uh, all of us accept that evolution has created our limbs and our livers, our hearts and our hair and our eyes and um, everything you see around us in the physical world. But not many of us really uh, link evolutionary theory to behavior or culture. Mm. So, I mean, you know, culturally, music, all the weird little kinks and tweaks that you have in every city, the Melbourne coffee culture, all this sort of stuff, like linking that to evolution or even uh, all the religions in the, around the world. Yeah, that's right. You know, we, we think uh, obviously uh, evolution on the physical sense, you know, we've got bigger brains so that we could do all these sorts of things. So it kind of makes sense, but no one really thinks about the evolution on the culture side and some things are good, some things not so good. Obviously, you've got the ugly side, infanticide, genocide, rape. They came along with the evolution of culture, but also certain things like a mother's sacrifice for their child, enduring romantic love, civilization's care for its citizens, young and old, healthy or not. These things also came along for the ride when our culture evolved. Yeah, some pretty dark shit you just mentioned there in the ugly <laughs> just, side of things. I just skipped over it pretty quick to yeah. get to the good stuff. <laughs> you did, but uh, I think people fear to say, oh, that's part of evolution um, mm. because it's just so ingrained in us as a species, but it it is true, but it doesn't mean that it's immutable. Uh, just because it's a product of evolution doesn't mean we're powerless over it and we're not forced to suffer the cruelty of evolutionary fate in that sense. If we go back to some evolutionary basics, and Matt, I probably need a refresher on this. So the genes, they're inside of us. They do the shit, yeah? Yeah, they're trying to propagate themselves. If you think back to the selfish gene, <laughs> they're trying to survive and uh, keep replicating as much as possible. Now, the genome, the genome, is that what tells the genes what to do? And Correct. the genes do it? Yeah, so that's like the piano player. Uh, I've forgotten that analogy, so let's not go into detail there. But it sits above. It's genome's still the, above genes. It's still the individual level, right? Yeah. And that then sense. above the genome is the epigenome. Correct. Yeah. And this is what he's, he's bringing up now. And this is the thing that doesn't get spoken about a lot in the evolutionary sense. And he's saying that our culture is basically the epigenome. So it's above the gene, above the genome, you've got culture sitting above all of those. So, yeah, genes describe your proteins and the processes to construct the body. So, that's at the granular level. Culture has a powerful influence on where your bodies go, what you do as an individual. And in this way, uh, culture, which is regulating you as an individual, is a way of genomic expression. Holy technical deep stuff there. <laughs> so, what he's saying is if I... Man, I'm glad that you... I don't think you defined in the book that well. Because I was a bit lost at this point. So, I'm glad that you were able to, to well, uh, help sense, me out there. Yeah, definitely, yeah. So, what he's saying is if you go to a rock concert, um, yeah. this might be a long bow, but he's saying in some <laughs> sense, that's a cultural thing and in a way, you going to that rock concert is in some way, uh, it is a, a way of genomic expression and it, and it is linking all the way back down to the gene level. And also, if, I suppose if you, I'm going to try to go on the fly here to build on that, the cultural level there, if you're in the mosh pit, the mosh pits of heavy metal rock concerts can be pretty wild. Yeah, I remember. I remember going to one. It was like at like the Chelsea Community Centre or something. They had, they had like a weird. That well, that's just a local. That's just a local <laughs> bar. That's what I thought. Yeah, it wasn't even a bar. It was like a. It was like the town hall type of thing, and they had like a heavy metal band there, and there was just people going absolutely wild, just flailing all limbs, like kicking, pushing people, bumping. It just seems like in normal everyday society, you wouldn't be doing that stuff. As in, it, it doesn't seem to have any kind of. Uh, evolutionary benefits to be kicking people, to be getting in biffs, to be like bumping around everybody. But for some reason, the cultural level of being at a rock concert has developed this trade in people. 
Mm. <laughs> is, is that a good example of what he's saying about how the culture kind of dictates the things that we do? Yeah, exactly right. So it is, and uh, and he's saying it should be looked at it in an evolutionary sense, and uh, and we'll get into it a bit later. But like, if you're just questioning that and say stopping the rock concerts, um, maybe that's not such a good idea. Maybe you should be in there moshing and um, punching and kicking and hurting each other. And I don't know what it is, but I'm sure there's a reason for it. But I, I haven't I haven't cracked that one yet. So he's got what he calls here the Omega Principle. He's got a range of different principles in the book, which he speaks about, which are good um, mental models, I guess. But firstly, epigenetic regulators such as culture, they're superior to genes in that they are more flexible and can adapt rapidly. Mm. You went to a rock concert. Um, you know, you also took me to that soap pop oh, yeah. concert where you, you're watching, um, you know, what are they, Spice Girls sort of music. So that you can be quite flexible and adapt much quicker than your genes can uh, in that cultural realm. Yeah, that's it. If you think of how quickly culture adapts, uh, you know, Heavy metal rock music hasn't been around for thousands of years like our human bodies because it, it can adapt at the cultural level much more quickly than we can physically. And secondly, the epigenetic regulators such as culture like we're talking about, they've got a purpose and that is to serve the genome and the mm. genes in your, in your body and uh, the evolutionary direction that you're going in. That's right. So from these two kind of principles, we can uh, derive a pretty powerful concept in that any expensive and long-lasting cultural trait so, you know, things that uh, take effort to do and things that have been passed down through lineages of uh, generations or thousands of years. Religion being a good example there. Definitely. It's, it's expensive in the sense that, you know, you might give up a day a week and it also has lasted for thousands of years. These things, if they meet this criteria, they should be presumed to be adaptive. As in, they should be assumed that there was some, you know, positive beneficial reason that this thing happened and survived. Mm, being epigenetic, it is serving the genome. So... Uh, building pyramids, harvesting feasts, uh, all sorts of weird stuff that uh, each culture gets up to. Not that long ago, uh, you'd probably be considered a crackpot if you said, hey, spending your work days sitting at your desk uh, is a real big risk to your cardiovascular health and it might give you a risk of type 2 diabetes. There's no need to do these stand-up desks. You're sitting down all day. It's not actually not, <laughs> not that, that big a deal. Yeah, not anymore. We've kind of worked out there could be a link there and that an over-reliance on chairs brings about all sorts of negative health outcomes. Mm. And there's not just that, right? There's a whole range of different things that um, at the when you originally just brought up and that came into our culture, you think, hey, this is a, this is a good thing. It's solving a problem. I like to sit down all day. It's a bit hard standing up. <laughs> all sorts of other things. So, you know, have a think about what does deodorants and perfumes have do to our ability to smell yeah, norm like normally, you know, there's natural uh, scents emitted from our body and you think, oh, some of them are not so pleasant. So, if we whack some deodorant on and cover them up, that's probably a good thing. Yeah, well, would help maybe... if someone just reeks, right? <laughs> that's Back in the it. day, you say, oh, I'm not going near that person, not going to spread my genes and <laughs> genes over there. But ma yeah, maybe there was a reason. Maybe there was a reason why the body was emitting those foul odors and you didn't want to be involved with it. But now the deodorant covers it up and now you just get into all sorts of things you don't want to get into with those people. That's it. You get it on and... Especially after night after the big booze, you know, it's probably something that compared to a um, hunter-gatherer sort of style, like what is that that sort of misperception done to your ability to uh, direct those genes uh, mixing? But all sorts of things like airplanes, what has that done to our sense of space? Uh, what about the clocks we live with every day that didn't used to be around? What's that done to our sense of time? What about the internet and our sense of competence? I mean, that's made me wildly incompetent in some areas, <laughs> along with Google Maps. If I have to get somewhere without google maps i've got no hope 
you get the point, I think, Astro. Oh, definitely, mate. There's all sorts of things that, you know, we're not saying that we should just get rid of the internet, get rid of maps, and we'll come back to our sense of direction. But we've got to realize that there are trade-offs and there are, you know, there are great things that come along, but there are also things we need to be a little bit cautious of. So he doesn't have an exact answer and a solution, but what he is raising is a new principle that we should be embracing uh, when we're moving into this uncertain uncertain territory, and that is the precautionary principle. That means that you've got to consider the risks of engaging in uh, any particular activity, and of course, you've got to be a little bit cautious when those risks are high. So especially when we're talking about complex systems that we don't understand uh, if you're tweaking something that you don't understand, this is when you should be engaging in the precautionary principle because it could be whack-a-mole, right? Like, you know, that game you used to play at time zone, you, you whack one head and then three others pop up somewhere else just because you don't understand the mechanics of the game um, underneath. Did that work? I think so, yeah. I suppose just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. Uh, you've got to be a little bit careful of some things. One thing he talks about here is the appendix. Now, the appendix generally just sits there. We don't really know what it does too much. There was a period of time where it was uh, thought to be a vestigial organ, as in vestigial, which means we don't know what the hell it does. <laughs> but of course, every now and then, some bad shit can happen with the old appendix. Uh, actually, both mum and my brother, Nudge have had appendix issues where it got inflamed. Mum was clever, went to the hospital, got it out pretty much that day straight away. Whereas Nigel was like, oh, it's a bit sore. I might leave it for a day. Oh, it's still a bit sore. I might leave it for another day. Might a bit sore. I'll leave it, you know, three, three, four more days. Oh, it's not sore anymore. Mm. But that's because it burst. <laughs> that's because basically the, the time was ticking. He had basically twenty four hours to get that shit sorted, or he was cactus. <laughs> so yeah, they went and mate, it was a it was pretty traumatic, man. They literally opened him up, pulled out his organs, Oof. Oof. put them on. Like, oh. like on the side it like a to scrub it. Bit of a sicko. <laughs> Is this all in front of him? Look he was out. Knowledge. He, he was out. out. Yeah. <laughs> but they, they, like they like had a, to yeah. literally take stuff out, put it on a table to scrub it clean to get rid of all the like uh, toxic stuff oh, that had exploded God. out, and then put it back in, back together, and sew him back up. So Jesus, the, the appendix. Whilst you know, for most of the time, it's just sitting there, not doing anything. If shit goes wrong, shit can go really wrong. Shit can go really wrong. And I think the big point is here, like he, you know, he should have got his appendix out. But just, everyone should just get their appendix out. If there's, if we don't know what it does, and uh, you know, if some bad shit can happen, maybe we should just all get it out just to be safe. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you were serious there or not. No, that, that's the. Uh, no, you got to give me the yeah, precautionary. That's a setup. I was like, I was a bit worried. I'm like, did you read this book? <laughs> But that's what we could be thinking. That yeah. is it could be thinking, right? But <laughs> yeah. the appendix is there and we'll get through a different framework to look at it, um, you know, if it does have a purpose. But if we don't know what the function is, then we shouldn't just assume that uh, we understand the, how it's going to interact in this complex system. So um, I have a question for you, Ash. Has evolution really left us with an organ that is nothing but cost? It mm. just causes shit for us and just poses a risk and... And it can be relatively easily surgically removed, and it turns out the answer is no. <laughs> and of course, it's no. no. You think that you think it wouldn't just be sitting there doing nothing for no reason, oh. and then you just take it out, and you're all good. You'd think there must yeah. be it must be doing something, mate. I think there's a you know Nicholas Taleb, uh, he writes about this sort of stuff as well. But like another one that came up in his books, like tonsils, right? Like just, mm. oh, just take the tonsils out. Yeah, they're, they're causing <laughs> you problems. An infection there, just take it. Of course, that caused all sorts of problems. Evolution came up with tonsils for a reason. Even like a few decades ago, I think, um, you know, getting rid of mother's breast milk and then coming up with uh, one uh, new types of milk out of the lab. Turns out, surprise, surprise, that breast milk does have some sort of additional purpose and it's not as simple as 
uh, we might like to believe, especially the entrepreneurs trying to spruik something. <laughs> That's right. So, uh, what um, Brett and Heather have done here is they're trying to work out, okay, is a trait adaptive? Is, in, is there a reason it's there? Does it serve a purpose? And they say that it can be presumed adaptive if, if it meets three criteria. If it's complex, if it has some kind of energetic or material cost, which varies between individuals, and if it has persisted over evolutionary time. So let's think about the appendix and if it's an adapt- adaptation. So firstly, is it complex? would say yes. Yeah, it is definitely. sitting there and it's doing a lot of things that are moving around and it is part of the human body, so check. Secondly, has it, ener- has it got energetic or material costs that vary between individuals? Uh, yes, as you grow as a human, some of your food and that um, material energy is going towards your appendix and there's an opportunity cost really when it's going towards that and not somewhere else. And thirdly, as it persisted over evolutionary time, um, the appendix is what, you know, millions of years old. It's not just in us humans as, as mammals. It goes way back down the evolutionary tree. So, it's not just arbitrary propped up for no reason. So, therefore, it can be considered an adaptation with some uh, evolutionary value. They've found appendixes in, obviously, in a whole bunch of mammals, including, obviously, humans, but also primates, rodents, rabbits. Uh, what they've found, it's like a little offshoot of the large intestine and it holds a whole bunch of intestinal microorganisms and basically if if uh if you if you go through a period of illness the appendix can sometimes top you back up with some good stuff so that's basically what they've they've kind of found and they found that because we've checked all these three boxes then the appendix it's probably there for a reason if it didn't have a reason it would probably would have disappeared because mm. you know as you say it it's complex it takes uh, energy and effort to create and maintain and also it's lasted for millions of years so it must be doing something so because it's doing something we probably shouldn't just cut it out mm. if there's no reason to cut it out now that's really at the genetic level we can also apply this at the epigenetic level so culture so remember uh, if it's complex if it's got material costs or energetic costs and has persisted over a long time it's probably adaptive. So apply that framework to anything and whether it be that rock concert we were talking about, mm-hmm. you know, there is an opportunity cost for you spending your time there that night. Um, and getting bashed the shit out of. Getting bashed the shit <laughs> <laughs> It's complex and it's, uh, and it's it very has existed over a long time. I mean, we've danced around the campfire. That's probably the, uh, <laughs> That's right. the, the prehistoric <laughs> analogy. And uh, so it does have some sort of good reasoning there. So if we were to just um, remove music out of our culture, Good examples probably the um, in Sydney, Australia, right? Like where there was one person who punched someone and then they uh, died from it. So they come up with new laws of locking everyone out at 12 o'clock at midnight. So all the bars have to close there. So there's no nightlife beyond 12 o'clock. Uh, that's a very simplistic and reductionist way of looking at the world, isn't it? Because you are stopping all these epigenetic factors are in play, which are in culture. And you're basically stopping them um, thinking that nothing bad is going to come of it. And of course... Uh, there are going to be some negative consequences from it. That's right. So this kind of brings about this important parable uh, called Chesterton's Fence, named after the 20th century philosopher and writer, something Chesterton, Johnny Chesterton, Sammy Chesterton. What's, I don't know, Ch- Frank Chesterton. Frank. <laughs> <laughs> don't quote us on that. It's something Chesterton. <laughs> but this the story of old, old Chesterton here, uh, it was a, a fence or a gate was put up across the road from him <laughs> And uh, you know, some, someone comes along and says, "What's this? What's this fence doing here? I don't see the use of it. Maybe we should just get rid of this fence altogether." To which the a more intelligent person might say, "Well, if you don't see the use for it, you probably shouldn't just get rid of it straight away. You should probably think, well, why is this here in the first place, and try to work out 
is there a reason that this fence is here in the first place? Yeah, and until you can find out the reason, mm. that's the only time you can remove it. Now, this is a, he Chesterton. He, he was uh, he was around at the same era when medical doctors, um, like we're coming up with, or not long ago about the appendix, they were saying the large intestine. Hey, that's useless. You can just start chopping away at it. It's this long thing. So that was at the time when Chesterton was around. He was saying, hey, look, you know, the appendix, the large intestine, they're probably in, uh, Chesterton organs, you could say. <laughs> They've um, meet those three criteria we've met. Um, they're obviously not useless. And, you know, the same can be said about a lot of things like gods, breast milk, cuisine, play, or nightlife beyond 12, uh, 12 midnight. <laughs> That's that, that Chesterton thing. If someone's saying, this, what's this large intestine doing here? If we got rid of this large intestine, there'd be so much room for all this other shit that can go on in our body. But that's when, if you don't know what it's doing, probably don't chop it out. It's only until you work out what's this actually doing, then you can decide if yeah. it's worth chopping out or not. Mate, and uh, it's probably a good one to slip in here that Brett and Heather were probably the leaders of a bit of the anti-vax movement, you could say. <laughs> yeah, they, were, they were, were some of the big ones, yeah. They were the big ones. And it's probably quite linked to this. Um, if we were to uh, strong human or strong man, their argument, it is that, hey, we're sort of innovating with this new vaccine and we're putting it into something mm. as complex as the human body. Um, you know, maybe we should apply the precautionary principle here and assume that we don't know too much and not, uh, it might be a good experiment, but not something at such a big mm. population level. Might be totally fine, but let's apply this Chesterton fence principle in this instance. That didn't really happen. So we'll see what, uh, <laughs> see what happens in a decade or two. That's right, in a couple of generations' time. So people, according to them, people, you know, in the 20th century who were declaring large intestines and the appendix was useless and uh, all sorts of analogous things to that, and even saying it's actually hazardous, these things to the human body, people who were aware at the time of Darwinian trade-offs um, should have been aware of this Chesterton fence and been the ones putting on the brakes. And when such situations come up in our lives, we should be trying to be smart enough to think about what are the evolutionary and adaptive benefits to it before we start yanking it away and tossing it out. If you thought we'd uh, hung enough shit on doctors for chopping out intestines and appendixes and that was it, Mate, if, you're, if you're a doctor, I'm sorry to say it's not. If you're not a doctor, you'll be happy to know there's more shit we're about to hang on. Oh, <laughs> mate, I'd almost say that it comes up in that many books as part of culture <laughs> and it is epigenetic. Uh, hanging shit on doctors. So we are improving the uh, evolutionary fitness of reason, human species. There must be a reason for it. For targeting doctors specifically. Sorry, doctors listening. I reckon it's, I reckon it's almost 15% of our episodes doctors cop it for some reason or is other. Is it us selecting or is it the author selecting? <laughs> I don't know. Not sure. But like we've, uh, we've briefly introduced you to the idea, the medical system has been quite reluctant to take up this evolutionary thinking and opting instead for, for a lot of pharmaceutical fixes that too often create a lot of more new unexpected problems. It's almost the what like the curse of success or something that because you know doctors and the medical system have been so smart and they've worked out hey if we if you take this pill you can fix this one specific problem that you've got that's incredible and so then people start taking it but then they don't realize that okay it's not like a a robot or a machine where you tweak one thing and it's isolated and you fix that thing and it's fixed. Actually, because the human body is so complex, if you tweak something and fix that, 
there's probably something else is in the background that you don't realize is probably changing and adapting and trying to overcompensate for that change. And you don't know what other things, you know, as you say, you whack down one mole and another couple pop up somewhere down the track. Yeah, it's probably like even more intense in that whack mole game. Like you whack down one mole and then um, the door flies open at the back of the room <laughs> and you whack one, you know what I mean? You whack one mole and uh, the person who's uh, at the reception gets shot by a sniper. <laughs> what I'm saying is it's a, it's a total... <laughs> the game of whack-a-mole here is... Totally black swan related, and you don't understand what's going on. <laughs> Maybe you whack a mop, the receptionist gets shot by a sniper. You, you, you see know. what I'm saying there, Ash? So, I, I, I sort of do, yeah. No, we played whack a mole in Australia, right? Like, we, uh, what do we bring in? We brought in um, all sorts of different foreign species. Uh, like, is it the carp in the Murray? Yeah. The fish? Yeah. So that didn't used to be here and it got brought in for a specific it reason. Yeah. It's meant to fix something. <laughs> and now no, like, just, you know, we should we should care about our um our fish and stuff like that. If you catch a fish in Australia that's a carp and you put it back in, that's illegal. Mm. They want you to pull it out and start stabbing it with a knife <laughs> and throw it in the in the garbage bin. That's how bad they are. The other thing is we had a uh we were growing sugar cane, I guess, and there was a this cane beetle was coming over and destroying all the, the cane crops. So then they're like, you know what? We've got a great idea. There's this cane toad in Hawaii. Let's bring it over. The cane toad will eat the cane beetle and then our cane crops will be fine, which was a good theory. But now they didn't really eat all the beetles. The beetles are still there. And now there's just shitloads of cane toads everywhere. The whole state of Queensland is covered in cane toads. Oh, it doesn't work, <laughs> this whole like bringing in new species to solve specific problems because as we said, the uh, the receptionist gets shot by a sniper. <laughs> That's right. So... And this shouldn't surprise us really because complex systems are just that. They're complex, they're completely interrelated and we don't really fully understand them as much as us as a species like to think we understand a lot of things. The sea of unknown unknowns is much greater than, than we'd believe. There was one example in a, a 2019 New Yorker profile about a, a woman named Laura. She was over-prescribed psychiatric drugs for years. She entered college, she was multi-talented, she was privileged by all visible metrics uh, but then internally, things started to disintegrate while she was studying at university. She went and saw a psychiatrist. They stepped in to help her, uh, and they found that you know she had bipolar, she had borderline personality disorder. She found they found all these things and said, okay, well, here take this drug for this, take this pill for that, and then take this intervention for this. And over the course of just a few short years, she ends up with 19 different psychiatric psychiatric medications that she's taking to treat all these different things that they've discovered about her. Yeah, she said, I medicated myself as I was, I was a finely calibrated machine. The most delicate error potentially throwing me off. So yeah, that's right. She's got a headache. All right, there's something for that. I've got a backache now. There's something for that. Um, all of a sudden, I've got a bit of diarrhea. All right, take these ones and on and on and on. And all of a sudden, you're up to 19 as if... You know, not knowing that you do one thing, something else is going to come out of it. That's right. So the the thing here is that we're not these finely calibrated machines. When you take, you know, one intervention, because the body has all these intricate, complex feedback systems between the brain and the body, the hormones and the moods, uh, all these different things that we don't really understand that if we try to fix one thing, we flick one switch, as you say, the receptionist getting shot somewhere down the track. <laughs> Someone is poor receptionist. And this can be applied to a lot of things. Being complex, and if we're looking for a paradigm to actually think, hey, what is more true? Think back to those three different things, and perhaps the the old Lindy effect, which they didn't bring up, but things that are more prehistoric in those hunter gatherer times is more likely to be more adaptive to us. So, uh, take exercise for example. I've uh, I've started getting back into just weight training. 
But when you think about it, it's probably pretty silly in this lens because weight training is a relatively new thing. You're probably mm. better off going out there doing um, more ancient activities, even gardening, like walking. Sports mm. has been around a long time. Hunting and integrating sort of these uh, these things with your physical activity and then you're probably actually um, getting the exercise done without all the counting and um, counting of your reps and stuff like that. <laughs> well, that's right. It's kind of like a, it's almost like that one specific intervention. You do the bicep curls to get the biceps big, but then you probably throw your neck out. Whereas if you do something that the hunter-gatherers used to do, if you go out and you know pull up a bunch of weeds or you go and pick some fruit off the trees, you're kind of doing those whole body exercises that we've been doing for you know millennia and that's probably a better overall physical exercise for you. Here's another example, mate, uh, of, of us not applying the, the, the uh, precautionary principle or the Chesterton's fence. Uh, early in the 20th century, it was found that fluoride was discovered to correlate with fewer cavities. Like, oh, hell yeah, this is great. Yeah, if you take more fluoride, you get less cavities. Great. Makes sense. So, let's, um, let's load up all the water supplies to decrease the, the tooth decay of everyone. Let's just pump fluoride all in the drinking water. Um, it's a byproduct of industrial processes. It's not really a molecular form that comes up in nature at all, which is something that's purely human-made. But hey, it's no big issue because it um, reduces that. But again, another issues do pop up here. So um, neurotoxicity in children is uh, increases when exposed to fluoride drinking water and all other stuff. They found, yeah, that even like salmon exposed to it, they lost their ability to navigate, so they couldn't go back home up the stream to lay their eggs or whatever salmon do when they go back upstream. Uh, it seemed like this, you know, we had this one magic bullet that was going to fix everybody's teeth with no other health downsides. Turns out there probably were some downsides. We might should have maybe looked into that a bit further. Mate, we brought our, our vag up a few times, a bit, bit of a conspiracy. Also, according to him, the whole point of it was to um, trap the pineal gland, uh-huh. you know, and the consciousness <laughs> thing and uh, that stop you from enlightenment and just keep uh, keep us all in a, ah. in a box and um, unaware and, and blind. Yeah, it's kind of like the, the chemtrails, yeah, that they're, they're spreading. That's, that's, all, that's all linked, isn't it? It's all linked, mate. They're, they're not playing with the fence there, I don't think. But all sorts of stuff here, mate. What's some other examples, Astro? Another one was around uh, reduction of sinking around vitamin D, saying that, you know, the sun's not that important and we've got skin cancer and if you go out in the sun, you get skin cancer or you should put sunscreen on to, to block the sun, sun out. Turns out that if sun exposure goes down, if you do all these things, if you avoid the sun, if you stay in the shade, if you wear long sleeves, if you wear sunscreen, yes, you're going to reduce your rates of skin cancer, but there's other problems as well. So other things suffer. So your blood pressure is much worse off. Uh, there's a higher rate of heart disease and stroke. Uh, there's all these things where if you stop going out in the sun, bad shit happens. Yeah, what is it? Slip, slop, slap and uh, when summertime comes around in Australia... <laughs> Uh, when summertime comes around in Australia, you got that add-on where you got the school kid just there's more avoiding there's, sun at all costs. Isn't there's it? slip, slop, slide. There's slide, slide on sunnies, and there's a there's a fifth now. It used to be three when we were kids, but now there's five. Basically, just uh, avoid the sun at all costs, if possible. But um, what do you know? There's other research that says something else, and they the other research showed that non-smokers who avoid sun exposure, so you're not smoking and you're doing all the things you meant to do. But apparently, unfortunately, you got life expectancy similar to people who do have smokes and are in the high sun exposure group. So if you're having <laughs> a ciggy in the sun compared to the people who are slip slop and slapping without a cigarette, the ciggy in the sun person is I got a longer life expectancy. That's crazy, isn't it? So um, we're not saying to have a ciggy in the sun. You're better off not smoking in the sun and you're the best of all groups. That's right. Not smoking and in the sun, that's good. 
Uh, but obviously, you still need to be careful of skin cancer and other things like that, but not to the extent of never getting any sun ever again. Because it's, uh, you know, as we say, we're a complex system. You can't just try to fix one thing with no downside. There's always trade-offs. There's always risks. And you've got you know, you to have a bit of everything, I reckon. Oh, yeah. Get me a little bit worried about... Um the chef good decision move I've made recently to just get all your meals in little packages uh, and microwave them. So first we've got a microwave in a package. It's Bit got all plastic. the fungals and the anti-fungal. Yeah. That's, that's going to be no good. That's going to be no good. Mate, that's, I can, I can, no, I was going to say almost guarantee, but no, I can definitely guarantee if you go back to hunter-gatherer days, they weren't microwaving plastic-wrapped no. foods uh, that were prepared in a lab somewhere. And then again, they put me in a jungle and trying to make me be a uh, hunter-gatherer with a, a spear, trying to chase down a moose or something. You probably wouldn't last that it's long, not would you? Happen. <laughs> Let's loop back to the very start, uh, the original definition. So, remember we said culture, these are the beliefs and practices shared by everyone and members of the population and these are the things that become really automatic in the way we do things on the other hand you got consciousness this is where we need to change our culture we got new sets of problems that we didn't have previously and this is where we need to to swap into these mode and between the two this is the human niche where we're able to jump around and uh, choose to play the culture game or the consciousness game they say that in times of stability when inherited wisdom allows individuals to prosper and spread across relatively homogenous landscapes, culture reigns. As in the things that have been ingrained for a long time, if we're doing a lot of the same things, then that's a really good idea. As in we should be sticking with the culture and we should be sticking with that uh, long-held wisdom. But in times of expansion into new frontiers where there's innovation and new interpretations of new things coming down the pipeline, when the communication of brand new ideas, they're critical, that's when consciousness comes into play. Now, there's a, a paradigm that can really help us understand on and when to play both, and which is going to help us uh, what's the best strategy for each time. And it really stems from a, a study in 1951 by social psychologist Ash, and he was trying to figure out what extent social forces have to alter people's opinions. And he just asked a simple factual question, which of these three lines is the same length as the fourth line? Mm. As in... You not a, pick, we don't have the line in front of us, but there's obviously one. There's that, three lines. You've got to pick. This is the same as one of those three lines. Which are the two that match, yeah? And that's what objective reality is, right? Because we do have an you objective just, you world You can see the lines, there. yeah. You can see the lady lines. <laughs> Things don't go as well when you've actually got a naive participant at the end of the line and then all the people before him are choosing the wrong one. That's right. The right answer, you can physically see that, it, that the answer is C. But then you got you're the fourth in line, and the first person says A, second person says A, third person says A. Are you going to go with the group and say it's A and think your eyes are tricking you, or are you going to say no, it's actually C? I can see it with my own eyes. That's it. So this this study stood the test of time, and it just didn't happen in our lab. It's happening all around us in culture, and there is a time to push between this wisdom and culture and innovation and consciousness. But really, one of the things holding us back is conforming to the way the group thinks. There is, uh, there is probably sometimes where you might be inclined to go with A. There are sometimes you definitely want to stick to your guns and go with C. I think it's important to know what the group thinks. You need to know that everybody else is saying A. But if you can see with your own eyes that actually the answer is C, sometimes you need to just go against the group here and stick to your guns. So that's the thing we shouldn't be. Don't be the person who never conforms to patently wrong statements just to fit in the crowd. We need to be a bit more courageous and at times choose to be ash negative. Mm-hmm.